0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: How should judges be appointed? Judges are unelected
2: to their position and their democratic legitimacy in fulfilling this public role stems from the fact that they are appointed by the people's representatives.
1: In Australia, politicians handpick judges. But in the UK, it's a panel of experts who choose what's the best way. Damien Carrick with you. This is the Law Report. First, what do Australia's leading lawyers really think about the government's plan to enshrine a First Nations voice to parliament in our constitution? Do they think the proposed amendment and referendum question are cogent? Or could the voice to parliament open up a raft of unforeseen legal problems? Over the past month, the country's leading legal minds have been meeting to pressure test the draft model. And you are about to hear, for the first time, the issues that have been raised at these Frank Consultations, which have been run by the Indigenous Law Centre at UNSW. The discussions have been led by Centre Director, Constitutional Law Expert and Cobble Cobble Woman Professor Megan Davis. She's also part of the Government's 21-member Indigenous Working Group, which is tasked with advising on the referendum. Also involved in the lawyer discussions is constitutional law expert UNSW Professor Gabrielle Appleby. They both join me now. Welcome to you both.
0: Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, great to be here.
1: Megan Davis, if I can start with you. The gathering, who is attending these meetings and and how were the participants chosen?
3: The participants in the workshops have been invited by their professional law societies meaning that we've engaged or partnered with the Law Council of Australia and the Australian Association of Constitutional Law. And we've asked, especially the Law Council of Australia, to ask its constituent bodies, so law societies and bar associations, to pull together an invitation list of those practitioners who specialise in um, constitutional law, and in particular um, our senior practitioners whose practice is in advocacy before the High Court in terms of constitutional law. It's a core part of their practice. So what we wanted to do was to hold these workshops with those who specialise in the field to get some feedback from them on some of the drafting that's out there, including the Prime Minister's draft that was released at Gama.
1: And there are also judges and ex-judges who are participating out there.
3: Yeah, they have been, yeah.
1: So what are you trying to achieve here?
3: We hope to get, which we are getting, really important input and feedback on the drafting and where the problems might lie, and alternative language, you know, consensus, all of those kinds of things regarding the drafting, so that we can have, at the end of the day, a most robust provision that you know, will stand the test of time. And that meets the aspirations of the Uluru Dialogues and what they saw in a voice to Parliament. And
1: how robust have these conversations been? I mean, the criticism might be that these are meetings of like-minded supporters of the voice who might not be alive to the complexities or the problems or the pitfalls. Have you been having really robust conversations?
3: I don't really know what like-minded means. I mean, I don't think these conversations are really particularly robust in terms of, you know, we have some of the best minds coming to these meetings and providing input into the drafting. And that's been really incredible, the generosity of time, the preparation of people have put into it and the thought that people have put into it. Um, I don't know. We didn't ask for people to attend that there was a prerequisite as to their political persuasion. So we, we don't know the backgrounds of the people coming in, other than that they specialise in this field. And because they specialise in this field, they actually do have quite a kind of specialised, highly specialised knowledge into, knowledge into drafting and pitfalls and all of those issues that you raise. So that that's precisely why we're doing the workshops.
2: Today, I reaffirm my government's solemn promise to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. The voice will exist and endure outside of
1: the ups and downs of election cycles and the weakness of short-term politics. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese speaking there at the Gamma Indigenous Cultural Festival in July. Professor Gabrielle Appleby, if I can come to you. So Prime Minister Albanese has proposed a three-sentence draft constitutional amendment to remind people what are those three sentences?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the Prime Minister has given us three sentences. He's indicated they're not final, they're subject to further consultation, and he hasn't indicated where they're going to be placed in the Constitution. Um, But the three sentences are, first, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Second, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to Parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Third, the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice.
1: So, that's a three-sentence statement. In these discussions with the country's leading legal minds... What have been the main issues that have emerged? I believe one of them has been around the scope of the primary function, you know, how we might define matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.
0: Yeah, sure, and um, discussion has centred around a few key issues Um, and, as you say, Damien, one of those has been the scope of the primary function. There's a pretty strong view emerging a consensus view that those um, matters must be on issues that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, not only laws that are specially directed to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but general laws that have particular significance for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But what we're seeing emerge in the consultations is that trying to reduce the scope of that primary function, narrow the scope, creates all sorts of concerns about potentially a legally enforceable limit that might lead to future invalidity of laws.
1: Certainly, I understand that there has been some debate. Uh, for instance, uh, two supporters of The Voice, Frank Brennan, uh, you know, academic, ha- has proposed that The Voice be limited to advising on laws that distinctly concern Indigenous Australians, things like land rights or or native title or, or, or cultural heritage or Indigenous languages, special measures for Aboriginal people. And I think Barrister Louise Clegg also, you know, prima facie a supporter of, of the voice says that if you apply laws of general application, this overcorrects and overreaches. It elevates and weaponises um, Aboriginal and Islander, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representations about laws of general application to the entire population above the representations of other citizens. So, what was the discussion in the meetings about whether or not that's a good idea? I think you're telling me the consensus was that wasn't a good idea.
0: Those consultations have revealed a couple of concerns. The concern is that that narrower scope wouldn't meet the aspirations of the Uluru Statement, and so it's actually a proposal that is not accepting that invitation in the Uluru Statement. It's something narrower. It's something different. What we also see emerging in those discussions is a a recognition that these laws that might look to be of general application, they have particular significance, particular particular application to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and there's a really legitimate reason why you need to have the First Nations voice speaking to these issues, thinking about policies such as the... Um, cashless debit card or voter ID in elections, we know from the debate around those issues that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities are particularly affected by those laws. In order to get the benefits of this voice, which is the lived experience of First Nations people speaking to government, engaging with government and parliament, you need to have that wider scope. What we're also seeing emerging in the consultations is, as I said, a technical concern with narrowing this scope and this this raises all sorts of um, legal concerns about creating a legally enforceable limit that might lead to court challenges in the future and even potentially to invalidity of future laws, which is not the intention of the voice proposal.
1: So by keeping it general to matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they can, you know, make their representations about what they think is important, but if you detail what those matters might be, then that's opening it up to all sorts of legal disputes about whether that particular matter falls within that particular definition of what a matter might be.
0: That's right, and there's been um, a really interesting discussion emerging from these consultations as well about the need for accountability of the um, the voice in determining the scope of its function and that accountability lying with its representative nature, the fact that it will be accountable back to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for the matters it chooses to make representations on. And of course, it will be accountable in terms of it will have a set budget, a set set of resources, and it needs to process prioritise and make best use of that budget and resources for the people it's representing, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. So, it won't be a totally unlimited, unaccountable scope. It will be an account, a politically accountable uh, scope rather than the concern that it might turn into a scope that can be litigated in the court and potentially lead to invalidity of laws.
1: Now, now before we move on to kind of other areas, you say that there's a consensus building, but presumably there were differing views amongst the the lawyers attending these meetings?
0: There have been differing views around uh, a number of issues. Um, In this particular issue, there seems to be a pretty strong majority view around the need for a general remit. And as I said, there's real legal concerns around the narrower remit that have been expressed in all the consultations.
1: So has there kind of been debate or conversation in these meetings with lawyers about whether in the the, the draft amendment, whether or not we need to have more detail about how the parliament or the executive should receive, consider, respond, take into account the views of the voice when, when they respond to matters that they say are important to Indigenous people? I mean, is that the view about whether or not we have enough detail in the current proposed amendment?
0: Yeah, and there has been discussions about whether there should be something in the constitutional amendment that is more explicit, compels government and the parliament to at least give consideration to the representations that have been made by the voice. But the discussions that have followed from that suggestion is a concern that, uh, once again, you don't want to create a situation where the relationship between the voice and the parliament and the executive might be able to be litigated and the courts become involved, potentially leading to invalidity of of laws or executive action. Um, So there has been quite a lot of discussion about the relationship between how you constitutionalise this response and what we refer to as justiciability, the likelihood that it can be um, litigated in the courts. And the real core of the request in the Uluru Statement is the request for voice and the request for a seat at the table, a constitutionally guaranteed with constitutional status, constitutional body speaking to other constitutional bodies and whether then it's then left the political process and that relationship to develop over time between parliament and the executive and the voice as to how that engagement happens. You certainly don't want a position where you might have a singular engagement required by the constitution and it becomes a a ticker box technical engagement and not a really genuine engagement because, of course, that's what's desired here. First Nations people want a representative body who the executive and the parliament are going to genuinely engage with to improve the quality of decision-making policies and laws that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
1: Megan Davis coming back to you so so you've been having these conversations um, with the lawyers around the country what's the next step are you going to kind of distill all their their opinions uh, down to some kind of report or, or analysis and then take that back to the working group of of uh, indigenous people
3: yeah originally and the the purpose of it is to write a report that will distill all of the input that people have given it will be a thematic based report is one that we intend to, once the, all of the consultations are concluded, we will give to the Attorney-General and his department, and um, and also it will be submitted to Minister Burney and Senator Dodson as the Uluru envoy, and to the working group, the Voice Working Group, which is one of the committees that um, Minister Burney has set up for the work toward a referendum. Before I let you go, have there been any surprises
1: or unexpected uh, turns in, in in this process or in these discussions? Uh, a question to both of you.
3: I'm letting Gabriel answer that look. It's been really <laughs> an excellent, excellent exercise. You know, we've been able to speak to some of the best constitutional practitioners in the country, and some of them have raised really important questions. Ones that the odd one that perhaps we hadn't considered enough and you know, some issues that are more kind of prominent um, and complex than I, I guess we'd considered or not. It's, it's been excellent. People have been really, really generous and have given really freely of, of their time and a lot of really um, deep thought and legal kind of thought to the issue of what of will what constitutionally and trying voice look like.
0: I would agree. It's been an incredibly valuable set of discussions and it's not over yet. And I'm really looking forward to see what emerges in the final consultations. What I've been particularly struck by is the level of comprehension of the complexity of what the delegates at the regional dialogues were seeking in relation to the Uluru Statement. Um, and that these legal professionals have come to this task with that brief in mind, that they're looking for a legally sound Constitutional provision. There's been a lot of discussion about technical constitutional issues, but also with the brief that this provision needs to meet the aspirations of the Uluru Statement and that it needs to be a strong, robust provision. That means that when we go to a referendum, the amendment that is before the Australian people is genuinely an amendment that poses the question Do you accept the invitation of the Uluru Statement? And they've really brought their minds to those two key questions.
3: And I think that's a really important point that you make, Gabrielle, in that what I've felt we've heard is a greater appreciation and understanding in the professions of the right to self-determination and Aboriginal cultural rights and other things. And I don't know, but it's um, it's been interesting to see the level of understanding and and comfort with indigenous rights within the framework of the Australian legal system.
1: Cobble Cobble Woman, Professor Megan Davis, Director of the Indigenous Law Centre at UNSW, who's also a member of the government's Indigenous Working Group, tasked with advising on the referendum. And also Professor Gabrielle Appleby, constitutional law expert at UNSW. Thank you both for speaking to the law report.
0: Thank you for having Thanks for having us.
1: Damien Carrick with you. You're listening to The Law Report on RN or available anytime via the wonderful ABC Listen app. What's the best way to appoint judges? Here in Australia, the Attorney-General decides. In contrast, in the UK, there's a Judicial Appointments Commission that chooses judges. Last week on The Law Report, you heard a wide-ranging conversation with Lord Jonathan Sumption, who sat on the UK Supreme Court between 2012 and 2018 and was also a member of the UK's Judicial Appointments Commission. Lord Sumption thinks Britain's system works well and it's best to keep politicians out of the picture.
2: Australia still has the system that we abandoned 20 years or so ago where appointments are made by a government minister, and I don't for a moment suggest that these appointments are not very carefully made. On the other hand, I think that the Judicial Appointments Commission in the UK has benefited greatly from the absence of any kind of political input.
1: Well, should Australia go down a similar path? Professor Andrew Lynch is Dean of Law and Justice at UNSW. Andrew Lynch, how are judges chosen here in Australia? Well,
2: Damien, as you said, the Attorney-General presents a name to Cabinet for appointment to, say, the High Court. Justice Jane Jago was recently appointed to fill a vacancy in the High Court of Australia. Mark Dreyfus, as Attorney-General, consulted very widely on that appointment, which is returning to a practice that the previous Labor government had instituted, a very transparent list of uh, organisations and individuals who are consulted, but then makes a pick based presumably on a short list that's narrowed down as a result of all of that feedback and considered by the department. And then um, that name is is approved by cabinet. So it's an executive appointment.
1: And the appointment of Jane Jago was very historic because for the first time, a majority of four out of seven members of the High Court of Australia will be women.
2: That's right. I mean, that really is the last, gender frontier for the High Courts.
1: So in contrast, over in the UK, how does their Judicial Appointments Commission work?
2: So the Judicial Appointments Commission for the appointments to the courts of England and Wales is a very bureaucratic process. It's a well-resourced, independent statutory body. It's quite a remarkable constitutional development because the executive relinquished its power over appointments there's a much larger judiciary uh, in the sense of going all the way down to the very lowest levels up to the very the very top, the UK Supreme Court. And the creation of the commission was motivated by a couple of things, but one thing was really just designed to be a more efficient way of selecting individuals for appointment. Now, some of its processes I think are kind of commendable, particularly in terms of the way in which individuals are identified for a judicial career track and how they are supported and encouraged to apply for that. And it has been successful, I think, at um, diversifying the profile of the lower ranks of the English judiciary. But there are also criticisms of the Commission. And a really significant one is that the executive step back and the judiciary, which by no means runs the commission, but is a significant voice in the commission's operations. As you said, Lord Sumption himself had previously been a commissioner. It occupies a more significant and formal role in the selection of judges. And, you know, one of the ways in which that's been perhaps manifest is a slower pace of diversity on the benches of the English and Welsh courts. Why would that be? I think that the shorthand explanation is one of self-replication, which is that the judiciary, by being given a significant voice in identifying those for appointment, tends to um, base that decision on, on itself. You know, it's that, that the classic expression that we use of unconscious bias. And even though I think, you know, we're aware of unconscious bias and, and take steps to stem its operation. The argument that's been advanced by those in that jurisdiction who have been disappointed by the pace of change have said, well, you know, the judiciary is not prepared to look for merit in places that it hasn't traditionally been found. The idea simply of widening the pool of applicants isn't enough. We need to perhaps understand diversity as an integral part of merit, which is a view I know that Lord Sumption has spoken quite strongly against. I think another consideration is that when the commission was set up one of the things that the government was quite keen to do was address the problem of political patronage in appointments. So the executive stepping away was seen very much as a positive thing and in that regard it certainly succeeded because the government isn't isn't sort of appointing you know its friends to the bench. So in that regard the commission operates at arms length and has been an unqualified success. But the expectation that it would lead to a more diverse judiciary has been, at this stage, disappointing.
1: Really interesting. Last week, Lord Sumption said that only one in 12 of the judges of the UK Supreme Court are women, and he acknowledged that the optics aren't good, but insisted that appointments are made on merit and it's important to have the best person in the job. In making his announcement, Australian Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus said he made it very clear that he chose Justice Jane Jago because she was the best possible candidate, and this was a merit-based appointment. This appointment is of the best possible person for this position to the High Court of Australia. I'm wondering how, if we have uh, you know people talking about merit-based appointments as being the primary objective in both systems, how do we have such dramatically different outcomes? One in twelve women on the UK Supreme Court versus four out of seven women on the High Court of Australia.
2: Well, the least convincing explanation for that would be that the women working in the legal profession in England and Wales are not. Um, that there's a dearth of merit amongst them. I mean, that just cannot be the case. And really it must be then around the, the different processes that are in place. And what does merit mean is the, is the classic question in this area um, because it can mean lots of different things. And the reality is that everybody insists on merit. I mean, the people have to be up to the job. They have to be have, have that legal knowledge technical skills, experience, and personal qualities as well. I mean, let, let's not forget that, you know, the sort of the, the upstanding and probity of the individual is really important. But the idea that only one person has that at any particular time, I, I think is is hard to believe. I know that just assumption in some of his writings talks about, well, you know, when you're at the very top end of the selection process, there is, you know, his expression, there is clear water between the individual who's appointed and those who are otherwise. But again, that's that, that's a strange thing to believe given the size of the population, the, the, the range of the pool. Those who are appointed clearly have merit. So there's no criticism of any individuals there. But but it's it's a stretch, I think, of the imagination to say there are just no other possible or credible contenders for those positions. And really, you know, I think... A range of factors goes into that. And presumably, given how widely uh, Attorney General Mark Drace has consulted, he would have received many names. There would have been some that came up over and over again. And and, and we can assume that Justice Jago was definitely one of those. But I would imagine that there were other judges who were also in contention. Um, Now, it may well be that on this occasion, there was just an unquestionable amount of clear water between Justice Jago, who's enormously highly regarded, and others who were considered. But on each and every occasion that an appointment is made to a superior final court, I would doubt that that's the case. There would be presumably a shortlist of extremely qualified and appointable people.
1: As a matter of public policy, do we want the politicians removed from the picture? Do we want to give it to the judges and, and maybe a, a panels of more dispassionate people who, well, who don't have connections to politics or perceptions of connections to politics?
2: My view is that appointments needs attention and needs transparency and clear process, but I definitely favour executive control of that. That, That's for a few reasons. The first is, you know, judges are unelected to their position and their democratic legitimacy in, in fulfilling this public role stems from the fact that they are appointed by the people's representatives. So I actually think it is very important that the government of the day appoints judges. I also think it's important, though, that they exercise that power responsibly and in a way that the public can understand and have faith in that, you know, the very best people are being appointed to the job and for the right reasons. So, I think the attention that the Commonwealth Attorney-General has given to the topic is really welcome. I think it does make for a more understandable process. The other thing that you get from an executive appointment is an ability to act on diversity and to see that as an important part of making the courts a fair reflection of the community that they serve. What's happening in the United Kingdom is quite worrying. And I think uh, Lord Sumption himself has acknowledged that if the executive retained, I think he said this in his interview with you, if they had kept that power of appointment, then presumably the makeup of the Supreme Court would look different from how it currently is with one woman out of 12 and I think that's, you know, that disconnect, that democratic deficit. One of the byproducts of that is an absolute deficiency of diversity in a final court, and that's quite worrying.
1: Andrew Lynch, uh, Dean of the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW. Thanks, thanks for speaking to the Law Report. Thanks, Damien. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina kukolya and also to technical producer Matthew Crawford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law.